the Dragonlance Nexus is proud to present the Dragonlance Canticle. Hello, and welcome to the Dragonlance Canticle podcast. This is Megan, and today we have a very special guest joining us. James Lauder is an Origin Award and any award-winning author and game designer. He's also the author of several D&D tie-in novels, including a pair of Ravenlock novels, which have been dubbed The Terror of Lord Zoth, Knight of the Black Rose, and Spectre of the Black Rose, the latter of which he co-wrote with Veronica Whitney Robinson. James also worked as an editor for TSR in the late 80s and 90s, supervising the development of the fan-favorite Defenders of Magic trilogy by Mary Kirchhoff, among others. Currently, James is the executive editor for Chaosium, the publishers of the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game, where he won his most recent Emmy Award for his contributions to the Pulp Cthulhu supplement. James, thank you so much for joining me today. I am a huge fan of your Lord Soth novels, and it honestly feels slightly unreal that I am here talking to you today. Thank you very much for having me. It's just, I don't know, it's a strange, it's a strange world, this, this world of the internet, when this distant and remote figure from my childhood is now sitting on my computer screen chatting with me. <laughs> well, it, yes, and it, and it is odd to be talking about uh, these projects that, uh, you know, I worked on, oh, decades ago. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I, and I'm so happy that people are still enjoying them and they still have an audience. Definitely. I mean, I'm involved in the both the Dragonlance and the Ravenloft fan communities online, and people people love your books. So. Oh, and the fan communities are are terrific. Mm-hmm. They they are across the board. The you know they they have their problems uh, <laughs> in corners, but for the for the most part, the uh, the the fan communities around uh, Dragonlance and Ravenloft and the Forgotten Realms are are fun, welcoming places, and, yeah. and I enjoy participating with, with the fans. And I'm sure everybody listening is very grateful that you're taking the time to speak to me, speak to them about your career and about your work. So today we are going to cover two broad topics. First, we are going to talk about you, your time at TSR, your career since then, and of course, what you're up to today. After, we are going to speak at length about the character of Lord Saw. Try to get to the heart of who he is and discuss his future in 21st century gaming. To get us started, would you please tell us a little bit about how you became a horror and fantasy fan and how you first got into playing Dungeons and Dragons? I was from very early on as a child, I was a fan of genre fiction. I read incessantly as a kid, gravitated toward Arthur Conan Doyle and Ambrose Bierce and storytellers like that. Melville, I, I read Moby Dick many times as a kid. You know, from from those sorts of things, Jack London and and Mallory and the Arthurian stuff, I decided very young that I wanted to be a storyteller. I wanted something to do with all of those cool books in the library. And I've been fortunate enough long term that my trajectory took me there. As far as as far as gaming goes, I started gathering a, a, a community of friends and this was in 77 78 so we were early adopters for for D and a D. first played gamma world a very short game of gamma world in which i was eaten by a giant radioactive weasel uh, and that happens and, and yes which <laughs> gamma world is pretty regularly from there got involved in uh, first playing the home spock set D, and then a D with a regular gaming group the group I played with, we played uh, behind a kitty amusement park uh, <laughs> called King's Castle Land, which had giant plastic, plasticine dragons that really shot fire and, you know, all over. It must have been very immersive. It was, yeah, we, the, the one of the uh, people I played with, his family owned the park. That group was fantastic. And then I uh, brought in a number of my other friends from high school. So I, I I was incredibly fortunate with the gaming group to get in with a very storytelling focused creative group, very arts minded people. Was that the norm for kind of the tabletop role, what we call the tabletop role playing games now? That to have this sort of story story driven focus because whenever I hear people talk about it, it feels so feels so crunchy. It is, and that's the thing. It's that conflict between the game that that Gary and uh, the early role-playing game people thought they wrote and the game they actually wrote. Uh, And they were thinking of it in terms of, uh, and you can see this in Gary's editorials in Dragon, 
where he's thinking this isn't for the theater arts kids. That's not what this is about. Let me tell you, my group, that was not the case. That My group was all about the theater arts kids and the people who were doing storytelling. And Have you seen that that meme where it's like, um, it's sort of like a Venn, di- Venn diagram and it's like theater kids on one hand, on the other hand, it's like math kids on the other and the cross section is D&D players. Oh, sure. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's yes, exactly right. The intent maybe for the game originally was not necessarily what Gary envisioned was that sort of storytelling game. But, but clearly the platform of role-playing games is about shared storytelling. Yeah, it seems to me that however the game was originally intended, uh, a game that relies so heavily on imagination is going to draw in imaginative people. And those imaginative people are not going to be satisfied with just the simple number crunching. They're going to want to build upon these characters and upon this right. world and these stories. And I think it was probably inevitable that D&D became what it did. Oh, it is. And it's actually fantastic. And part of the reason why the game is seeing the wider acceptance and interest now is because the game has become more of that over time. It's less about encumbrance tables and it's more about creating characters, whatever character you want to play. I mean, that's that's always been, for me, the core appeal of, of what role-playing games were. Would you speak a little bit more about how you landed your first job at TSR? I came out to go to, to attend Marquette because it had a fantastic liberal arts program. And I knew that that was the direction I wanted to go in. I ended up double majoring in English and history and a minor in philosophy. And then met the person I would eventually marry, my first class, my first day at Marquette, who was, and she was also a, a D&D player from high school. It was one of the things we had in common. Uh, she, she was from Wisconsin and had played out here. Uh, that was something we had in common and we played in, in college. I went to Illinois for two years for grad school, decided that didn't work, moved back to Wisconsin and started looking for a full-time job up here. And while I was doing that, I was freelancing, but I ended up interviewing at TSR the first time in uh, 1986 for the job of running Gen Con. Uh, (laughs) And I I came within one person of getting that job. I, I was the uh, I was the runner up for that, and boy, am I glad I did not get that job. <laughs> well, it's still going, so you know it is. You must have done something right. <laughs> it is. Oh, absolutely. And the, the, the Mark Olson, the person they hired at that time, was great. He was definitely a better hire uh, <laughs> than I was. I interviewed again at TSR about three or four months later for a book department job, and again did not get hired. Uh, they hired Eric Severson that time. Uh, and which was, again, the right move. He became the person who eventually served as Bob Salvatore's primary editor. So the success for Bob's books have a lot mm-hmm. to do with Eric. And that uh, second interview was with was with Gene Blashfield Black, who was running the department at the time and will be familiar to Dragonlance fans as Margaret and Tracy's editor mm-hmm. uh, for the original six Dragonlance novels. Gene was a terrific editor and, and uh, a really smart woman. Basically, she told me, you're not getting the job, but you will eventually work here. <laughs> so, so stay in the in the orbit. There might be some writing you can do because she liked my writing samples. And TSR at the time was going to do a Timelight Books type series on the 50th anniversary of World War II. So it was going to be history books about World War II. And then in the back of each one of the books, there were going to be war games where you could play that part of the history of the war. Great idea. <laughs> uh, and, you know, Doug Niles and some of the other people who were who were in-house as game designers, because I'd had the double major in English and history, I was the person she saw as, you can edit this. That project dragged out forever, and <laughs> eventually TSR management decided they weren't going to approve it. So from the end of 87 through the beginning of 88, I was selling movie reviews and mm-hmm. waiting to start at TSR. And then I got a job offer from Gary Gygax at New Infinities, which was also in the area. Gary had left TSR, been driven out of TSR, mm-hmm. and started his own company. He offered me a job as that would have been split game editing and fiction work. But little did I know, New Infinities was doomed. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, they were on their way out, too. So then after 
Gary offered me the job. I sat waiting for that job for another six months. <laughs> and finally, Mary Kirchhoff called me from TSR. Jean had retired or mm -hmm. had moved off to do uh, freelance. And Mary took my name off the top of the, the resume list and said, you are exactly what I need for the department because you are both a gamer and have a background in fiction. You can do both. The other two editors in the department, Eric and uh, Bill Larson, uh, were the other two in-house people. And then Pat McGilligan was a, a kind of a satellite editor. He had done a lot of the work with Margaret and Tracy after Gene left on Dragonlance. He was really the primary kind of Dragonlance editor after that point. And then Mary Kirchhoff was running the department. Mary had a games background. None of the other editors did. So I could do the gaming uh, related fiction that they were thinking they were going to ramp up again after kind of a lull after the first six Dragonlance books. And so I, I started in mid-1988, right before Gen Con. Well, when I hear the story told, it's, it seems like that's kind of the trajectory of it. You know, the started with Dragonlance and those were such a big hit that the, the idea came, well, if, if we can have such a hit with these Dragonlance books, we can try it with the other, but they, were they already doing Forgotten Realms at those, at that point? Let's see. The first two or three Forgotten Realms books had come out before I started. One of the first things I worked on was Spellfire, the first Ed Greenwood novel. Mm -hmm. um, I was also the copy editor for Azure Bonds, which was the first uh, Grub and Novak novel, which I dearly love. That mm -hmm. is a fun book if you get a chance to read it. Doug was writing the Moonshade books and, and Bob Salvatore had written the first, I think the first book was out and the second one was just coming out when I started. Drist still hadn't hit. He, he, <laughs> he was still that background supporting character that we were getting lots of mail about. Yeah. Um, the arc for the, for the fiction program at TSR, it had started with Rose Estes suggesting that the company do pick a path books, you know, the choose your own adventure thing. Pick a path books had then led directly to Gene Black thinking that they should actually be trying to do more direct fiction. And that's where the original Dragonlance books came from. And then the, the, the six Dragonlance books had done so well that in, in uh, 87, they decided, all right, well, let's try this with some of the other lines. Mm -hmm. And Darkwalker and Moonshade came out and did spectacularly well. Uh, they hired Bob Salvatore to write uh, The Crystal Shard. And the Streams of Silver was the one that it, I think just came out when I started. And then it, uh, it blew up from there <laughs> because I started in mid-88 as an editorial assistant, I was there to Xerox manuscripts and answer the unsolicited slush is what they, <laughs> that's the lovely term for in publishing <laughs> or for manuscripts you didn't ask for is slush. And so uh, I answered a lot of the slush and did a lot of the editorial assistant type stuff. Within a year, I was the primary editor for what would become the most important Forgotten Realms series uh, at the time, uh, the Avatar stuff, which was mm -hmm. a giant crossover between mm -hmm. games. And, and and that's why they hired me. I had the ability to kind of work in both worlds. And you wrote one of those novels too. Um, I did because the, the process was so broken. Um, oh, no. The, we, we lost the second author on Tantris. There was originally three authors on the books. Scott Hansen wrote the first one. Uh, another author wrote Tantris. And then Troy Denning wrote uh, Waterdeep. Mm -hmm. And Scott and Troy had the easy jobs because this was a trilogy of linked stories. And this is where they're different from Dragonlance because Dragonlance was way ahead of its time as a transmedia storytelling property. Because mm -hmm. it because it was tied to comics and it was TSR published graphic novel adaptations and they had the modules that were connected to it and and this was all being built off of those six novels with Margaret and Tracy. But most of the people working on all of that material were in house at Lake Geneva. So you just had to go down the hallway to say, <laughs> Don't do that. That's not how the story goes. Yeah. Avatar was being written and plotted as second edition D&D &D was being written, and it was supposed to explain the differences between first and second edition in the Forgotten Realms. Mm -hmm. So we'd get a plot done, and Zeb Cook would come in and say, all the assassins are dead. Now, oh, no. <laughs> um, we, 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 we sort of have an assassin character in this book. Well, he's not an assassin anymore. Oh, no. Poor um, assassin. And, 
and, and poor <laughs> authors who are writing these yeah, books really? at the same time. So the, the writer who was in the middle got completely ground down by the process and, wow. and left the project. And That's then, unfortunate. It is. But then um, I plotted Tantris. Scott Siansen wrote a very quick first draft after that original author left. And then I rewrote Tantris. And then after the first three Avatar books, I wrote Prince of Lies, which was mm -hmm. the direct sequel to the first three books. That seems to be a fan favorite, Prince of Lies. It worked. Uh, that book, I'm very happy with how that book turned out. Yeah, and people do enjoy it because when I because I like to brag, I've been telling people, oh, I'm interviewing James Louder. Uh, <laughs> <and> people <laughs> were like, oh, you should ask him about Prince of Lies. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I that that product that project as a book worked very close to ideally for how a shared world book should work. I got to pitch it and say, this is the book I want to write before it was contracted. The game department, Jeff Grubb and, and Karen uh, Boomgarten at the time, Karen Boomgarten, gave me a bunch of great feedback. Ed Greenwood gave me a bunch of great feedback that shaped the book. And then I got to write the book I wanted to write. So you spoke to me, or when we were corresponding before this interview, you spoke to me that you had been the development editor on the Defenders of Magic trilogy written by Mary Kirchhoff for Dragonlance. Right. Yep. Um, and that's another fan favorite trilogy. And having read the first of those novels, um, Night of the Eye, having read that recently, and also having read Dance of the Dead by Christy Golden recently, which you told me on Facebook that you had edited. Which is another book I edited, that is correct. <laughs> I actually feel like I do see some similarities in the styles between those two books. Sure. And so that got me thinking about when I'm a teenager and I'm reading these novels, I'm not really thinking about what's going on behind the scenes. I'm just thinking that there is an author somewhere holed up in some library, tip tapping away on their on their typewriter, creating this novel, sort of just pulling it out of thin air. And then it comes, that's how it's written and that's how it goes out into the world. But now I know that's not quite the case. <laughs> <laughs> but we as fans mostly just hear author names. I only knew James Louder author. I didn't know James Louder, editor of all these other novels that I had read and enjoyed. So tell me, sort of focusing mostly on the Defenders of Magic trilogy, can you tell me sort of how a Dragonlance novel came into existence in those days? Like, what was that process okay. like? It's a it's a complicated process because Sounds there like were it. <laughs> there were there were it's a spectrum really. Over the course of of the the, the history of the series, there were books in all of the, the lines uh, where the company had the idea and they found authors to write the idea. Avatar, the first three Avatar novels is a good example of that. TSR wanted to tell the story of, of what the, the change from first to second edition D&D, they were gonna, and they had a checklist of things they wanted the books to include. And they went out and found authors to write them. And the authors, given those guides, had leeway on how they told the story, but they're still working within some, at sometimes very tight restrictions on what they were doing. The same thing happened with some of the Dragonlance books when they were doing the preludes, where we know this is going to be the story of Flint as, mm -hmm. a, you know, a young Flint. So there are, there are already things that we know about that character's history. There are already limitations on when that story can take place and what it can cover. And so then you find an author who is interested in telling a story within those confines and able to tell the story in an interesting way. At the other end of that spectrum are things like Defenders of Magic or Kaz the Minotaur and Weasel's Luck and Stormblade, where you find authors who have an interesting story that they want to tell in the world, and it may create an entirely new area and all new characters. And it's effectively a story from that author grafted onto the existing material. And they have pretty close to carte blanche. You can't, as a Troy Denning used to say, you can't blow up the moon if you don't, you know, <laughs> for the Forgotten Realms, don't blow up the moon if unless you put it back at the end of the story. <laughs> but with, with Dragonlance, that was constantly a tension, uh, especially in the late 80s and early 90s, because readers wanted more uh, stories about the companions. But every time you told that, you are narrowing the focus of what the stories in that world can be. 
And it walls it off to a certain extent to new readers, because if I can only get what's going on with Tannis, well, here's the eight books you need to read, <laughs> the original six, and then here are all of the other ones that you need to get to get into that character. That makes it uh, makes it difficult. I think shared worlds as a whole thrive from allowing authors the opportunity to find places in the world for their own types of stories and expand them. And that was that was explicitly what we did with Defenders of Magic. That was what Mary Kirchhoff specifically wanted to do because she had written some of the prelude material and she had done Black Wing and she had worked primarily on those other books with Pat McGilligan, who was you know, Margaret loved working with Pat and they worked together really well. So all of after Gene Black left, Pat became Margaret's satellite uh, editor and he would uh, work with Margaret and they would do those. He would occasionally work with the other authors who were writing the prelude material and help coordinate that stuff. But his editing approach was very different from mine. Uh, my editing approach tended to be more toward challenging writers to make the stories their own mm -hmm. and to make parts of the world their own. So I had edited, you know, Christie's first three books in Ravenloft. You know, that was specifically why Mary wanted me as her editor for uh, Defenders of Magic, because she knew I was going to push her to make that a story that was hers. So you edited those three, the three Christie Golden uh, Ravenloft. So it's Vampire of the Nests, Dance of the Dead, and The Enemy Within. Yeah. So you, you edited those first. And then so Mary Kirchhoff saw saw your your work there. And so she wanted you to come in to edit her on Defenders of Magic. Right. Yeah. Mary Mary had originally um, trained me on story editing because mm -hmm. so the process for um, the editorial process for putting any of these books together and, and it's a little more complicated with shared world books because you're not just as an editor trying to make the author's vision clearer. That's my mantra as an editor. My job is to help the author clarify their vision. What they want to achieve in this book, my job is to help them do that and to be sort of a, a stand-in for a reader as well. I, I'm helping them develop their storytelling, but helping them connect the story they want to tell with their potential readership. With a shared world, you also have responsibilities to make sure that the stories stick to the canon and don't blow up the moon. Uh, <laughs> well, Crin has three moons. I mean, well, that's sure. You got two just, to spare. <laughs> and, and you can and retcon, what... retcon one in that used to have four and now we blew it up. I and mean, now it still has three. At the end um, of Dragons of Summer Flame, they literally got rid of the three moons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Brought in a whole new one. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, sure. There are ways to there are ways to do all of this, but it's like working on serial television, the old style serial television, not Breaking Bad, where it's you know that's got a story arc and a beginning and a middle and an end. The older serial storytelling, you know, Hawaii Five O or you know any of that stuff, those stories are the same churn every week, and they mm -hmm. kind of end up back in the same place where they started. Uh, the characters don't develop over time, yeah. uh, and there's a pressure for that to happen with shared world. Because nobody really wants to see, well, that's not true. It's not true of nobody. A significant part of the fan base does not want to see the characters change radically over time. They want to read those characters because they're familiar and there's value in that and there's comfort in that. And there are all kinds of reasons why that works. So the 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 word that got my attention when you were speaking um, about your editorial style, you mentioned clarify the author's vision. And I think that's the perfect word, clarity. So that's what I saw between the novels that you edited for Christy Golden and the novels that you edited for Mary Kirchhoff is clarity in the style. You can really sort of see and feel and sense where they are in this setting. And even when there's a lot of characters, everybody's sort of got their own their own personality and their own perspective. And that's something that I sort of saw in common between the novels that I know you edited. And, you know, part of that is both Christy and Mary are fantastic writers. And so that, you know, that was the same thing working with Troy Denning on uh, Part C, especially for, and uh, Dragonwall for the Forgotten Realms, uh, and his five uh, Dark Sun novels. I was the editor for the first five Dark Sun novels. And uh, working with Troy on those, he got better with every book. And, you know, my job got easier because I'm just helping him tell the story he wants to tell. Uh, editing is basically, in broad strokes, a three-step process. There is developmental editing, 
which is when the editor works with the author as they are writing the book to clarify the story and help them get the first draft completed. And then they mark up the first draft and send it back and they'll revise it. When that story is to the stage where it can move then from development, it moves to copy editing. And then that copy editor is the editor who works with the authors to fix the language and to make the descriptions consistent and, you know, the detail oriented sorts of things. And then once that is done, usually the book is typeset and then there'll be a proofreader and the proofreader will go through and check again to make sure the uh, things are consistent. And they will also do things like fix word choice and, and things like that and, and, and look for typos. And because we were such a small department at TSR, we all did all of them. My first introduction to Dragonlance was copy editing Stormblade and Weasel's Luck, both of them marvelous books. And again, that, that set my understanding for what the most successful non Hickman and Weiss uh, Dragonlance books could look like mm -hmm. is if you can look at Weasel's Luck and Stormblade and even Cats because Rick Knack developed his own little slice of that world and it's mm -hmm. his. It's Rick's world. People love those novels too. Then. And <laughs> people love those and with, with good reason because they were put together with all of the right freedoms for the writers to make those stories their own. So over time at TSR, I developed, I, I became more and more of that editor. So I started early on in, on that trajectory, but by the time 91, 90, 91 rolled around, I was actively advocating for the company to set up book invitations and open calls for books that would allow authors to do that. And that was the Ravenloft books, because I was the initial author on the Ravenloft series, uh, the Harper's series for the Forgotten Realms, which were all standalone novels. Here tell a story in a corner of the realms that hasn't been told. Your characters, you do something interesting here. And the stories could be any. Mary had heard me advocating for that for, for a <laughs> year. Like, oh, I've got an idea. I already knew yeah, <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, so I want to do that kind of book. And that was the first conversation we'd had about it was she said, I want to do that kind of book. I want to go off in a different direction for Defenders of Magic and tell a story that isn't in the shadow of the companions. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting to me because this is something I had not given a lot of thought to. I knew that the Ravenloft novels are kind of standalone novels, obviously, but I remember even, even when I was reading Defenders of Magic for the first time when I was younger, thinking like, this is different because this doesn't quite fit anywhere. It feels like this piece of Kryn sort of removed and set aside and it's a novel on its own so you don't need to know about the war of lance to understand this this story you don't need to know about the companions to understand this story this is a slightly different example but i had a friend when i was younger who was interested in getting into dragonlance and he said where should i start and i said legend of huma by richard knack because it's like you don't need to know everything sure. in order to get into that novel and you're also not obligated to read everything after sure. after you read that one you know you can read that and then you can read kaz the minotaur and then it's like boom you've, you've got your taste of dragonlance same thing with Defenders of Magic. You can read this one trilogy, and if you like it and you want to read more Dragonlance, sure. But if you don't, if it's like, okay, that's enough, then you've, you've still got a completely satisfying story. And it's the same way It's the same way with each of the Ravenloft novels, for the most part. You can pick up almost any one of those Ravenloft novels and just read it start to finish. And if you want to keep going, keep going, but you don't. By design. Yep. Yeah. And By design. It's like I said, it's something I never really thought about until you and I started corresponding. But it, there's a certain logic to it that these stories that are not quite dependent on other stories or dependent on prior knowledge on the part of the reader give the authors more freedom and perhaps the the freedom that the author has uh, reflects in the product itself well that's how the forgotten realms got dressed yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean if the flip side of that from the world is you can push that too far and make the world so scattered that it actually becomes hard to say what a Dragonlance book is mm -hmm. if it doesn't have that strong core. But that's always been the tension, especially with Dragonlance, because the first six books were so definitive. And Margaret and Tracy did such a great job creating the world that there was a lot of, of pressure to cue the stories closer to those companion tales. And those sold very well. The audience clearly wanted to see those. But the more you do those, the less doorways into the world as a larger creative setting. And that's that's one of the strengths of the Forgotten Realms, which is why 
it came to eat all of the other D and D settings and, beca- and became poor well, Dragonlance. It, it, <laughs> got eaten well, by the Forgotten Realms. <laughs> it did. It ate everything. I mean, it, you know, because you can tell horror stories in the Forgotten Realms. I if my if I had stuck around longer at at TSR or if the Ravenloft bookline had relaunched at White Wolf as was very close to happening at one point, uh, Christy Golden would have, especially if I'd stuck around at the TSR, uh, Christy Golden would have gone and written Jander stories set in the realms. Oh, I, I would love that. Which is why she's got, you know, the realms of, you know, the realms of anthologies, which were, again, that was something I pitched for the Forgotten Realms, and they were supposed to be exactly what you were talking about as the sampler. Where do I get into the Forgotten Realms? Read Realms of Valor and Realms of Infamy. There's a little of everything in here. There's a Triss story. There's there's an Elminster story. There's everything. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to like all of them because people's styles are radically different. But this is actually one of the strengths of the world and you can tell different stories. I love the idea of Jander Sunstar. So anybody listening to this who doesn't know Ravenloft, Jander Sunstar is the sort of protagonist of the first Ravenloft novel, Vampire of the Mist. He's a great character. He's even in the he's in the fifth edition. The he fifth is. Edition I wish book. they I wish they I wish they would have consulted with with Christy on on mm. what happened to the character. They did not do that. Um, no. That, there seems to be a lot of that going around. There is an uh, <laughs> yes, and that is one of my hobby horses. I will <laughs> complain about that endlessly. But you know, Vampire is Christy's first novel. It's, um that is amazing and that's and it's great. right out of the gate she <laughs> it's right out of the gate and so that was and well and christy was one of those people when i said that i read you know my part of my job was slush you know christy golden mary herbert elaine cunningham those are all authors who i discovered from the solicitation stuff that we got christy golden is still at it too she i think she had a star wars novel that came out not too long she's ago. done right? star wars stuff she's she's working for a computer game company now and still doing a lot of development and writing for them too. Yep. She's she's had a fantastic career. Yeah, she's wonderful. I love her books too. Yep. So next I have two questions that may or may not be related. So I want to talk about to whatever degree you feel comfortable discussing it, the end of your time working at uh working with TSR, because I know that you were originally full time and then you went to freelance and then you stopped you stopped work. I mean TSR stopped existing eventually, but I know you stopped working for them at some point. And also I wanted to talk sort of about the end of the the end of the D D fiction line so it's 2022 now i'm trying to think of when obviously it never ended the driz novels have been have been coming out continuously well, but they're but... not coming out they're not coming out from uh wizards of the coast right. those yeah. are being published under license and wizards is still occasionally doing fiction projects mostly connected to magic those yeah. are in-house and they've sort of been dabbling with those in terms of the the arc for the demise of fiction i would say that started in Probably about the time I quit the second time. At, oh, there it is. At TSR. Um, <laughs> There's the answer. All so, I have to do is hire you back and we'll have so, another, oh, another renaissance of novels. There we, there we go. <laughs> uh, well, they, they actually got close when they, when, so, so the, the arc for fiction from TSR to Wizards of the Coast, I think is, is easier to describe. Rose Estes, Gene Black, were the primary forces behind the fiction line in the 80s. Mary Kirchhoff took over in in 88 or 87, and she was my boss until uh, 92 when she went off to write more of her own stuff. Defenders of Magic was done after she had left the company as an editor. They brought in someone else from New York, who, in my opinion, took the book division uh, in a completely wrong direction. Ben Riggs has got a book coming out in the next month or two, so about the demise of of TSR. Mm. And you could, I'm sure, you could talk to Ben too. Uh, he he did a lot of fantastic research on that. And this is covered a little bit in there. So the fiction line declined pretty precipitously through the 90s, from about 95 to the end of TSR's uh, term. And it was, I think, partly mistakes in what the company was publishing. It became much less creator-friendly. It was also uh, market conditions, things well beyond the control of TSR. Uh, The way chain bookstores were changing and everything else uh, had a big impact on that. After Wizards of the Coast bought TSR, they relaunched the fiction line. And one of the things they did was rehire Mary Kirchhoff, which I think was a smart move. And initially you saw 
you know, that was the renaissance for, for the fiction lines. They came back and did a lot more quality books, I think, uh, in uh, the early days of uh, Wizards of the Coast tenure, uh, owning the, the fiction material. Mary was also instrumental to basically getting it set up so Bob Salvatore can write basically the books he wants to write. People stay out of his way, which has made <laughs> all of them a ton of money. It was really smart yeah. to do. So that's that, you know, Mary deserves a lot of credit for that. The problem was when Hasbro took over, Hasbro, from what I've been told, initially didn't realize that Wizards of the Coast published novels. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, <laughs> How do you um, miss that? <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it's only New York Times bestsellers, but you know. And so there was a, there was a brief period where Wizards had the chance to become the fiction publisher that would handle all of Hasbro's IPs because Hasbro traditionally has licensed out fiction connected to their, their intellectual properties. That's IP. And then Hasbro decided, yeah, we're not going to do that. We're, we're actually not going to invest the money in developing the book lines at Wizards of the Coast because they knew distribution for games and distribution for books and creation for, for fiction is a different animal and they weren't as comfortable with that and they weren't willing to invest in the company doing that. And the minute they made that decision, the writing was on the wall for the, the fiction program longer term at Wizards of the Coast. And then it spiraled from there. So books were selling fewer copies, which meant they get less support, which meant then they couldn't get authors yeah. And sooner or later, they, they started firing the book experts in the, in the company. They were let go, the people who were fiction experts. Now, mostly what they do is they license. And that's the Drist books are all licensed. So somebody other than Wizards of the Coast publishes that book. They have permission to publish that book and use the Forgotten Realms. Same thing is happening with Margaret Tracy's new books for Dragonlance. Those are being published under license. And that is a limited agreement that lets this other publisher use this material and publish it in a certain way. Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro approve the content. They get to say yes or no to everything that is in there, but they are not the publisher. It seems like a very different world from when you've got everybody working in the same building talking to each other. It is. And that was, that was both the strength and the weakness of TSR. You see it in the strength in the incredible ideas that came out of Sheridan Spring Roads in, in Lake Geneva, especially in the 80s and 90s. All that material that is still being uh, mined today by Wizards of the Coast. All of the, the stuff that they're developing yet again, largely originated in those, in those decades. The downside for, for it was that the TSR staff was awfully uniformly cis-white you know, mm -hmm. and so and and when you see some of the flaws in the older material, that's what that's reflecting. It's also reflecting, you know, an insular company that could have used a lot more diversity. Yeah. And so that's where I think looking back at how a lot of this material is being redone, that's to the best. I mean, mm -hmm. you actually want these things to be more diverse and to welcome more people in, in, to the, you know, into the playing room. That's <laughs> well, bless, bless you for saying that. Anybody who doubts, James Ladder himself says diversity is good. So that means it's oh, true. absolutely. Oh, yeah. No, I, and I am, and I am more than willing to uh, to say that repeatedly at, yeah, at, the top, I mean, at the top of my voice. It is good for more people to be accessing this. It is good for more people to have windows in which they can tell the stories they want to tell using mm -hmm. these worlds. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know it's it's a thorny issue. It's something that we at the Dragonlance Nexus are sort of dealing with. I want to say a constant basis. I think most most fans are are of the opinion that you know the more people we bring into Dragonlance or bring into Dungeons and Dragons, the better. Um, but it, it is. I mean, there are some people that just that don't want to accept that, and it's, it's sort of like how do we bring good, well intentioned people who don't quite get it? Like how do we bring them into the fold, and how do we keep out the people who are just straight up toxic? Right. Oh, exactly. Yes. And that is a problem for, for tabletop gaming and hobby gaming writ large. And there are people who are afraid that they are being disrespected and that the material they love isn't being shown the affection 
that they think yeah. that it deserves. Yeah. And those are those people in the middle who I think if the if wizards and the other creators who are coming to this material can treat it with respect. And that's that goes back to that hobby horse of should Christy Golden have been asked about mm -hmm. how gender gets treated in the new material? Yeah. Oh hell yes. Mm -hmm. And that is that is one way you can do that. But if you are fighting against this because you think that this material is yours and other people who are not like you don't have a gateway in, you're wrong. This material is for everybody. Absolutely. Well, thank you for saying that. But let, let's, because I think that's really good. I mean, you say it really well. And I think that coming from you is an important thing for people to hear. Um, but I want to jump. So you left TSR in, yes. uh, in, the, in the 90s. You went freelance. And then... Um, looking through your um looking through your entry on wikipedia you looks like you did mainly a lot of game design and and horror fiction writing through uh i, I through did the 2000s i did pretty much everything uh there was <laughs> there is and, and a lot of this doesn't show up in in lists like wikipedia i so i i quit tsr twice um i quit in 92 and mary kirchhoff talked me into sticking around as a satellite employee because i was unhappy with the upper management and i wanted to focus more on my writing and we we came up mary did a, a good job coming up with a setup for me to be able to do that and then i quit again in 94 when it was clear to me that the direction for the line and the way i was being treated as a creator were toxic okay um and so over the course of the time I, I was at TSR, I became very much interested in being a creator rights advocate and trying to set up even these shared world things in ways that give people platforms for the stories they want to tell. After 94, I actually came pretty close to leaving the, the industry because the breakup in 94 with TSR was super ugly. Mm -hmm. um, there was a legal fight that dragged on for three years over a Ravenloft book manuscript that I had written that the company didn't want to give me, but give me back, but also didn't want to publish. And uh, it's, you know, yeah, it was, yeah, it was just <laughs> ugly. And, um, and in 95, uh, especially uh, Stuart Wick over at White Wolf and Greg Stafford at Chaosium, spent a lot of time sort of cheerleading and keeping me around uh, in the industry. And so from that point, I did uh, short fiction for a lot of places, including White Wolf. I kept getting close to working with Chaosium, but didn't end up working directly for them until the 2000s. I put together the Pendragon fiction line for Green Knight. I worked on comic books, both as a writer and editor. I did all sorts of stuff. There isn't a job in book publishing other than actually physically running the presses <laughs> that I have not done at one point or another. I did about 25 anthologies that I put together. There's a lot here. The Wikipedia entry is on as long as my arm on the anthologies. The, the, the 100 <laughs> best books. And part of the reason that was happening was I could go to a, a place like Eden Studios and say, you know, there are and it's hard for anybody to hear this sentence and believe it was ever true. There are no zombie fiction books out on the shelves right now. What? Yeah. When I, which is not possible. <laughs> when I pitched the Book of All Flesh to Eden Studios, there was nothing in the market. There were two anthologies, one of them out of print. There was no zombie fiction going on. So I packaged those. I did I did the typesetting for those books. I bought all the stories. I did all the editing. You know, George and Alex did the cover design and everything. But, you know, I, I packaged those books for them. Did a book about the Munchkin card game. Oh, I love Munchkin. Yeah, the book's, the book's, <laughs> the book's terrific. It's really fun. There's some cro crossover here. So I my friends and I used to play Munchkin. We had a, my one friend had like classic Munchkin. My other friend bought the, the Old West Munchkin. And I bought the Cthulhu Munchkin. So. Oh, excellent. Yes. <laughs> So, so yeah, the Munchkin book um, has essays about how the games were created, but also some theory stuff and a couple of really cute. Uh, one of the one of the essays is um, letters from the uh, monsters in the dungeon, mm -hmm. trying to tell the Munchkins, "Oh, we're good neighbors," and the and the letters <laughs> get increasingly angry <laughs> as the Munchkins keep coming back and 
wiping all this stuff out. Um, so those monsters yeah, are hilarious. If anybody they, listening, if you're not played Munchkin, just just the monster descriptions alone are worth. Yes, are worth and the yeah, money. And, and and John Kavalik did the art for it, and each one of the essays has game rules, and the book itself has a game rule because, of course, it's Munchkin. How did you come to be involved with? Well, I guess, did you start. Did you work on Pulp Cthulhu first, and then you joined Chaosium full time? Is that I did. Well, Pulp Cthulhu is is one of those products that actually originated around. Oh my gosh, two thousand and three, two thousand. Oh my goodness. Four. So <laughs> that took a while. <laughs> it did. So Chaosium, they were nearly wiped out as a company in the collectible card game implosion. So I was originally writing parts of it, um, but was going to serve as the editor and the project developer. Kickstarter saved Chaosium, um, and it almost nearly destroyed Chaosium. The people who had been running Chaosium after 2000 used Kickstarter to basically relaunch the company, pull mm-hmm. it out of pull it out of that that spiral. And I came back and did an anthology uh, connected to the Orient Express. Kickstarter, uh, Madness on the Orient Express, uh, was a creator-owned uh, fiction uh, Cthulhu Mythos anthology connected to that Kickstarter. They also launched Seventh Edition, Call of Cthulhu, through a Kickstarter, and then got into financial trouble because the Kickstarter was overextended. Wow. Basically. So in 2015, Greg Stafford and Sandy Peterson got control of the company again in 2015. And they brought in a new management team. Uh, at Gen Con 2015, I uh, introduced myself to the new owners and said, hey, if you are going to do fiction again, let me know. Maybe we can work on something. The, the Orient Express anthology did really did well, and people seemed to like it. So what I didn't know was that the company actually owed a lot of people money. Mm, I heard the interview you did with them. The Modern Mythos podcast. They owed they owed money to to, to everybody. People. <laughs> so so at that Gen Con, um, after between the first day of the convention and the last day of the convention, the owners had talked to some other people because I I had never worked with them and they didn't know me really just a little by reputation and they had talked to some people and came back at the end of the convention and said, would you be willing to come on as a consultant? to help us pay the creator debt for the fiction. Well, you um, seem like an ideal choice. Describe which, yourself as a creator advocate. So. Right. It, yeah. And that was, and that's what they had heard from other people. And the, and I'm very happy that that's the case because I, I think it's important and, and creators especially need to, need to stand together and you know, how this stuff gets handled. So I said, of course I'll do that. You guys are doing the, you, you're doing the right thing. I, <laughs> I would be happy to help you do it. As long as you treat everybody fairly, I'm on your side. If at any point I think you're screwing anybody over, I will be out the door <laughs> with the people with the torches and pitchforks. <laughs> Just letting you know. And and the creative director at Chaosium said, yep, we're not afraid of that. Which, okay, that tells me you have no intention of trying to pull anything. So I spent a couple of years as a, as a consultant for Chaosium. Basically, as I've described it, putting on my asbestos underwear in the morning and answering furiously angry emails from people who were owed money for the last 10 years. Um, and, and part of the reason that Chaosium asked me to do this was when they look back over the fiction projects from the previous five to 10 years, there was only one where everybody had gotten paid, and that was mine. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> so so how, did, how did you do that? How did you work uh, that miracle? Right, exactly. So, you know, it, you know, I know, the, and, and this is the thing, Charlie Crank and the people who had been running Chaosium wanted to actually pay people. This wasn't them being malefactors. This wasn't them trying to pull a fast one on, on, on people. It's mm-hmm. they were in a financial position where the hole just got too deep. Yeah. Uh, there are other publishers that is not true of. So I spent a couple of years uh, helping Chaosium with that. Uh, then I helped them sort out a bunch of licenses uh, for the Cthulhu Mythos material with Ramsey Campbell and Brian Lumley, and it got more complicated from there. I was helping them rewrite all of their contracts. I'm right now working with them on trying to get some creative processes in place to do just what we were talking about with the old TSR fiction line. 
that you basically set up ways in which your editors are there to clarify vision for people and you try to make the most creator friendly atmosphere that you can make. Um, Pulp Cthulhu eventually came out when the new company put it on a priority and then Mike Mason took over the lead on that and Mike coordinated with me and we pulled back as much of the older content that had been written under um, the Aegis when I was doing the design. So some of the material I wrote is in there. Wolfgang Bauer's stuff was stuff I had commissioned. Uh, the big adventure that's in the back. Uh, Jeff Tidball's stuff uh, were things that I had commissioned in, I don't know, 2010, 20, 2005. It all got resurrected. And when the book won the Origins Award for it, I got to accept. Mike uh, Mason was, uh, I think, off running a game. Um, <laughs> uh, at, at that, at that, I think Mike was was running something. So I got to to do the thanks, and Chaosium encouraged me to thank everybody who had been involved in that product, including people whose work never made it into the film. And so, you know, people like William Jones, uh, Dustin Wright, who still is is at Chaosium and does a lot of the distribution stuff. Pulp Cthulhu was originally his idea. We had an origins. I sat in a booth at a restaurant with him and he said, hey, what if we did this? <laughs> and, and well, it's, it's been a smash hit, it seems like. It's, uh, yeah, it's a great it's a great idea for a book. Not long ago, I was looking into, you know, Call of Cthulhu actual play podcasts and a ton of them are Pulp Cthulhu. A lot of people yes. are doing uh, the Two-Headed Serpent campaign yes. on their on their podcast. So, yeah. And Mike, yeah, and Mike Mason has done a great job running that line, you know, and, and again, Mike goes back to the the Charlie uh, crankcase too. He he was somebody that that stuck around with the company, and Mike deserves the you know certainly the lead credit for pulling after twenty years of <laughs> Cthulhu finally together. And I'm I'm very proud to be associated with that. Thank you for listening to part one of my two part interview with James Lauder. Please check back next week for the second half when Jim and I discuss everyone's favorite Death Knight, Lord Zoth. We'll see you then.